Welcome to Let Me Ascertain You. This show is a program of The Civilians, the Center for Investigative Theater. Each episode captures a live event, and most everything you'll hear is taken from an interview with a real person. This podcast is the second in a series called Flops, Failures, and Fiascos, a live show that took place in New York City in February 2016 as part of the Civilian's Let Me Ascertain You Cabaret series. This season, for the first time ever, we at the Civilian's handed control of the Let Me Ascertain You Cabaret series to our R&D group of writers and directors. The Flops Cabaret was curated by Civilian's R&D directors Sanaz Gajar and Colette Robert, and it featured interviews conducted by members of our field research team about people shooting for glory, failing, and coming out with a good story. To kick off this episode, we have Maria Cristina Oliveras singing The Only Time. She is accompanied on piano by the song's composer and lyricist, Eric March, who wrote the song based on an interview with an actor who starred in a bloody good production of Hamlet. In college we did a play, a violent play, about the death of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. We made the actor who played the Duke a fancy sword to use in a fight to show he was a firebrand. The sword was supposed to collapse, but instead it went right through the scene partner's side. The audience gasped, and an ambulance was called, and the poor actor screamed and cried. It was the only time that anyone ever actually enjoyed a play. The only time a play was ever good. The only time that anyone was ever happy they went to a play instead of staying at home watching Netflix or trying the new Cajun place in their neighborhood. It was gruesome, it was graphic, it was horrible, it backed up traffic. And it was the only thing that made the play or any play ever enjoyable. Last weekend I saw a play about like a guy who yells at his family in Connecticut. I think it was an MTC. His daughters were like depressed, even though they were rich. But I don't know, TBH, I couldn't follow it. The acting was good, I guess. The tickets were decent, but I wasn't grabbed. So I entertained myself by thinking about the time that somebody actually got stabbed on stage. The only time that anyone ever actually enjoyed a play, that the audience was glad they left their cars. The only time that anyone ever regretted they spent, well, not that night, but instead of on basketball tickets, some wall art, a chair, or a case of granola bars. When that guy got an abrasion, it was a world historic occasion. The only time that seeing a play was better than absolutely anything else. No one had to pretend. 
pretend that the set looked real and not obviously fake. No one had to pretend that work was the same as rehearsal. No one had to say, wow, what a strong monologue, and not mean it. No one had to pretend that Shakespeare was universal and not impenetrable and boring. And even if they could fully get it, they'd realize it only spoke to the patriarchal concerns of 16th century English people and satisfied long-forgotten political disputes. And most disappointingly, no one got stabbed for real. Like the only time that anyone ever actually enjoyed a play. The only time a play wasn't hopelessly bad. Satisfied and content instead of angry, depressed, suicidal, perplexed, and just so existentially sad. It was awesome. It was magic. The exact opposite of tragic. It was amazing. Simply amazing. And after that, the whole world went back. Next up, we have Cindy Chung singing Samantha Chance and Christopher Larkin's Lament for a Tuesday, or Aftermath, about a woman who went on a really, really, really bad date. sun actually said a few hours ago but it's still setting in my heart because my heart is sad and battered since I just had a really bad date and not just normal bad a really bad date because he said some racial shit a really bad date and there were some fucked up gender dynamics as well a really bad date I guess I'm still sort of unpacking it all it was just really bad. Really bad. Oh, God. We met on Tinder, which isn't funny. It's normal these days. I swiped right, and so did he. And right swiping basically sums up our shared passions. And besides that, we pretty much have nothing in common. We met at this bar, which was a good start, because I have a stressful job in social justice and immigrant rights. And it's nice to unwind with a drink or whatever. And that's why I find Tinder really useful. I mean, it's a useful outlet. I know some of you feel me on this one. 
But the usefulness of Tinder didn't save me From a really bad date Yeah, not just normal bad Oh, he said all the wrong things Turns out he's into CrossFit and hedge funds A really bad date He asked me where I was from And when I told him Cleveland, Ohio He said, no, I mean, where's your family from? And then he started saying how he liked the Coldplay Him for a Weekend video. And I was like, oh my God, that video is a mind-numbing, soul-killing, orientalist piece of shit fantasy dreamed up by a millionaire white dude. And maybe I love the song Yellow like a hundred years ago, but if I'd have known he was going to turn around a few years later and churn out this racist, exotic of bullshit, I would have been like, yeah, Yellow, thanks. No thanks. care Beyonce is in your culturally appropriating video, it doesn't let you off the hook. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> a really bad date. And not just normal bad, a really bad date. A lot of microaggressions going on there, a really bad date. I don't want to be fielding microaggressions when I'm decompressing, a really bad date. You know, microaggressions just aren't really sexy to me. But you know what the worst part of it was? For some reason in the moment, I couldn't find the language to respond. He kept talking, I was silent all the while. You think with everything I've been through, all the countless times I've done this, I'd be skilled enough by now to not just nod and smile. I said nothing. And every time that happens I think there's something small that breaks inside I worry There's a precious piece of me that dies But fuck it <laughs> Woman's got needs so I sit with my iPhone The screen is glowing, beckoning and bright Cause it's a six plus Ooh. So it has a very large screen And maybe this time, this time I'll get it right Maybe this time it won't be a really bad date Maybe this time it's gonna be a really good date He wants to just I'm an alcoholicist Cause I go to bars every night A really good date And he won't comment on and suddenly judge my dietary practices A really good date And he'll be a really secure person of color Without any hangups Who isn't threatened by strong women And who also doesn't determine women's dateability Based on age and presumed fertility And will only consider dating women Several years younger than him Plus all his politics will be in order and he won't be a raging narcissist. <laughs> and he'll be good in bed. <laughs> I swipe right! To close this episode, we have Nick Corey performing a monologue as Michael R., a theater gossip columnist who once got punched in the face for describing David Laveau's production of Fiddler on the Roof as ethnically cleansed. 
David Laveau's production, all Presbyterian production of Fiddler on the Roof. It was amazing. He cast girls as Tevia's daughters who were named Kelly, O'Reilly, and Murphy. So I went to see an early preview of it and I thought, ah, oh, this is very pretty. But all the people are very attractive. Girls were gorgeous, guys were toned, and I thought, there must have been an equinox in that shtetl. <laughs> and I made that comment to a friend and he laughed and I thought, ooh, I'm always looking for a gag line and I thought that's good, I should run with this. No Jews in Fiddler on the Roof. And then I got an email from a professor of Jewish studies at NYU and he forwarded me an article he wrote for The Nation or The New Republic, some obscure journal that no one will ever see. <laughs> and it was all about how this fiddler lacked the Jewish soul. So I translated his elegant phrase, lacking a Jewish soul, into how David Laveau has de-Jewed or ethnically cleansed Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> Ha-ha. <laughs> this is what we do in tabloid journalism. We don't say it lacks a Jewish soul. We say it's been ethnically cleansed. <laughs> Loaded phrases that really stick it to them. And unbeknownst to me, this drove David crazy. <laughs> and his production was beautiful, but it was the Three Sisters. It was the Cherry Orchard. It wasn't Fiddler on the Roof. And then on opening night, and I was being interviewed uh, by, you know, the various TV people, because I had gotten a lot of attention for making fun of this Fiddler, and so they wanted to say, you know, what's your opinion on this? And David kind of was a, was a few paces behind me doing his bit. I saw him, and I think it was Fox. I said something like, like I said, well, I hear they're serving ham sandwiches at intermission. <laughs> So, so jump ahead, we go to the party, the reviews come out and Ben Brantley said, you know, this is the Episcopal version of Fiddler on the Roof. He had rephrased my, he usually does. I mean, I have to lead Ben in the direction I want him to go in my columns before he writes his review. Um, and then I was with Jimmy Niederlander Jr. who owned the theater and was one of the producers of Fiddler on the Roof and, and, a, and a good friend. And you know, he got the bad review and I said, eh, you know. You win some, you lose some. Let's go have a drink. I'll buy you a drink at Angus McIndoo's. So off we went. We were minding our own business on the third floor, having a, a Malbec, if I remember correctly. Well, in comes David Laveau and Maury Estin and David's, David's little posse of people. And David walks over and we start talking. And he said, you know, the, the one thing I object to, I, I don't care what you write. They always say that. <laughs> I don't care what you write. And then they proceed to tell you how pissed off they are about what you wrote. I don't care what you write, but, but the one thing that did bother me is you said I ethnically cleansed Fiddler on the Roof. That's a loaded phrase. I said, eh, maybe David, but you know, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm very upset about that. I was, that's, that's really beyond the pale. I said, David, please give it up, let it go. You wanna know what the real problem is? You Oxford educated directors are ruining our great American musicals. 
Because this was the time of the Sam Mendes doing the dark gypsy. The Brechtian gypsy. Terrible phrase, Brechtian. I hate Brechtian, I like Neil Simeon. So when I said, you British, you Oxford-educated elites are ruining our great American musicals, pow! I was suddenly on the floor, looking. <laughs> looking at my broken watch. It is not personal. I understand for them it is personal. They have their egos and time and money on the line, and they are pissed off. But for me, it is just the job that I do. And I am well aware that the guy who has this year's biggest flop may have next year's biggest hit. Look at Jeffrey Seller. I mean, he had the Sting musical that lost $13 million. Sad, pathetic thing. And then he comes back with Hamilton. That's it for this episode of Let Me Ascertain You. If you like what you heard, please help spread the word. To find out more about The Civilians and to see where you can see a live show, please visit our website, thecivilians.org. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>